Hello, and welcome to the River of Life podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to check out River of Life live this Sunday at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Visit riveroflifefl.com for service times and directions. That's riveroflifefl.com. Now, let's join special guest Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. Several weeks ago, Pastor Henry uh, stood on this platform. I think he stood about right here, if I remember. And he asked us three questions. The first question was, do we believe America is headed in the right direction? And I think the answer to that question was pretty obvious that no, it's not. It doesn't really matter if you're black or white or a man or a woman or a Democrat or Republican. I think we all agree that there's something fundamentally broken right now in our culture and in our government. So no, it's not going in the right direction. Then he asked us a second question. He said, do you believe that we have a responsibility to do something about it? Well, again, I think the answer to that is unequivocally yes. Uh, As a citizen, as a Christian, I do have a responsibility to do something about it. Well, then he asked a third question, which the answer wasn't quite so obvious, and that was, well, what do we do? If you say that we have a responsibility as a Christian or as a citizen to do something about it, then what is that something? Now, I remember that day, and I remember where he was standing, because I walked out of here, and I took that question to heart. And as I, as I hope that you did. And I, and I, be honest with you, I didn't walk out of there asking what does the church do. And I didn't even walk out of there asking what do you do. I walked out of there that day asking what do I do? What is my responsibility? Now, I began, so I began a personal study. Didn't have, I, I wasn't, be honest with you, I wasn't planning a sermon. Uh, I was just something for me personally. I began to ask that question. Now, I hear some people say sometimes things like, well, here's how we need to answer that question. What would Jesus do? What would the apostles do? And that's actually a good question to ask, by the way. I believe it's 1 John 2, 6 says, if, he, if anybody that says he abides in him ought to live as he lived. In other words, if you say you're a Christian, you ought to walk like Jesus walked. Paul himself said, I believe in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, Jesus and the apostles are our examples. We should live and do the way that they lived and did. But that I, got, I began to ask that question, what would Jesus do? And I realized the question is a little bit of a misnomer. Wouldn't a better question be, question be not what would they do, but what did they do? You see, Jesus and the apostles were born into the same broken world that we're born into. The other night it was a full moon and I went out and looked at the full moon and I realized Jesus looked at that same moon. It's the same world, folks. There's nothing new. He was born into the same broken world that we're born into. He was born into the same corrupt and broken culture that we're born into. He was born and lived under a broken government the same as we're born and living under a fallen and broken government. So a better question is not what would Jesus do. A better question is to look back and say, What did he do? So that's what I did. I went back to the Bible. I went back to the Gospels. I went back to the New Testament just for myself. 
And I began to read and I began to study. And I, and this time when I, when I read, I didn't ask, I didn't try to dissect every uh, scripture. I didn't try to mine spiritual wisdom. I read with one thing in mind. How did Jesus and the apostles interact with their culture? And how did Jesus and the apostles interact with their government? And when I finished that study, two things jumped out at me just as clear as a bell. It was as obvious as anything I'd ever seen. I knew when I walked away from that study, there were two things that I needed to do. But to be honest with you, I also realized when I walked away from that study that it wasn't just me, but it was two things that every Christian needs to do. And it's those two things that I want to talk to you about this morning. Now, before we get there, we need to take a little trip back in time. We need to go back about 2,000 years, and we need to look at the culture that Jesus and the apostles were born into, the culture and the government that the church, early church, was birthed out of. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this subject because, to be honest with you, it's a little distasteful, and i got a lot of better, other better things to say. But I think it's important that you know the culture and the government that, that um, uh, Jesus and the apostles were born into. Let's, first of all, did you know that the Romans were very religious people? The, the only problem was they worshipped every god except the real one. Uh, he was their king, and they worshipped him as God, but they didn't stop there. They had basically incorporated all the gods of the Greeks, and they just renamed them. So they worshipped Mars, they worshipped Neptune, they worshipped Jupiter, they worshipped Apollo, they worshipped Aphrodite, they worshipped Diana, and the list literally goes on and on and on. And across their empire, they erected not churches, but temples to these deities. And these temples would employ prostitutes. In fact, for example, the temple of Aphrodite in the city of Corinth employed over 3,000 temple prostitutes. And they had this idea that you would go to the temple and when you had relations with these prostitutes that you were somehow communing with the deity of that, of that particular temple. And by the way, there was no separation of church and state. Everything was government endorsed. The temples were government funded. The holidays were government funded. In fact, religious participation was mandated and considered highly important in the, uh, in the empire. As I already mentioned, prostitution was not only legal in the temples, it was legal in public, it was widespread. By the way, incest in that culture was not illegal. It was very common for brothers to marry sisters, uncles to marry nieces, and the list would go on and on. Pornography was considered, it was obviously paintings, but it was considered to be an art form and was posted on the walls of the most upper-class households. By the way, it was a man's world. Back then, I think uh, you heard Blackie mention, even in some countries uh, down south in South America, it's still a man's world, isn't it? Isn't it, Blackie? Men just do what they want to do, and that's exactly what they did then. It was perfectly okay for men to have as many mistresses as they possibly wanted to have, and nobody, nobody said a thing. By the way, and this is how distasteful this is, pedophilia was perfectly fine as long as the child wasn't a Roman citizen. You could be a pedophile. Nobody cared as long as the child wasn't a Roman citizen. You could do anything you wanted to do. Abortion under Roman law. An unborn child was not a human. 
so they had no problem with abortion. Infanticide, which is the killing of live babies by leaving them out exposed to the elements, was extremely common, especially for baby girls. It was such a men's world that they really didn't want girls too much. It was just another mouth to feed. They didn't really get anything out of them. So a lot of times when you'd have a baby girl, they would just take it over in the field and leave it. And basically what they would do is they'd absolve themselves and they said, well, if the gods feel like she should live, they'll rescue her. If not, it's just the will of God. And they'd let them die. By the way, under Roman law, you are required to kill a deformed child. Not condoned. You are required to kill an unborn child. I'm sorry, a deformed child. Divorce was rampant, easy to get. I ran across one example of a man and woman being married. It was his 29th marriage. It was her 23rd. So, the, you know, marriage, by the way, wasn't a thing you did, really did. Remember I said men, had they could have as many women as they wanted, so marriage was something you more did. Of, it was a contract, more between families to kind of join families together. And so absolving a contract was was really easy. Now... I say all that as distasteful as it is because I think you need to understand something. As bad as you think it is today, it doesn't come close to how bad it was back then. Okay? Sin of all types was common, tolerated, and even encouraged, even more so in today's culture. Now, I want you to listen to me very closely. This is the culture, this is the world that Jesus is born into. This is the world. This is the government and the culture. False gods everywhere. Sexual immorality rampant. This is the world that Jesus is born into. Yet when you read the Gospels to find out what does Jesus say to the Roman culture and to the Roman government, you find the oddest thing. He says absolutely nothing. Nothing. He he just pretty much... Ignores it. I mean, think about it. It's the oddest thing. Here you have this Roman culture that's so far to the left, it is so far away from the real... They're worshiping false gods. They're, they're engaged in sexual immorality. They're, they're, they're so far away from the true God. But then over here, a lot closer, you have the Jews. And yeah, they got their own problems, but at least they're close to the one true God, Right? At least they're worshiping one God, and that is the true God. And when Jesus has something to say, when Jesus goes to someone, who does He go to? He goes to the Jews. He goes to the religious people. He goes to the people of God. Now that shouldn't really surprise us. Even in the Old Testament, when you go back and read the Old Testament, God seems to be much more concerned about His people the way they act, the way they think, the way they behave, than he is about cultures of the land. Let me give you an example from Second Chronicles chapter 7. We all know that uh, King David wanted to build a temple for, uh, for God. And, and God says, no, David, you got too much blood on your hands. I can't let you do that. I'm going to let your son Solomon build it. So Solomon stores up everything, and they finally, after many years, they build this temple, and they have this day of dedication. And Solomon gets up and he prays this exquisite prayer. And the Bible says, fire from heaven came down, consumed the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It was an amazing day. I mean, the epitome of the Israelite people. And that night, 
God comes to Solomon. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. You're going to recognize this. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, then if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. This is a, a, a scripture that we love to quote, don't we? That, that scripture is completely about God's people. It has nothing to do with the Jebusites or the Hittites or the Parasites or the Philistines or any of them other people. This is all about God's people. He says, when, I send, when my people are disobeying me and I send pestilence among my people, if my people will humble themselves and turn from their sin, turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. He doesn't say a word about the people of the land. He's not concerned with that at all. God's concerned with His people. How do they think? How do they act? How do they behave? And Jesus seems to do exactly the same thing. He seems to focus his attention. He doesn't call out the Romans. He doesn't call out the Roman government. By the way, not only is the culture corrupt, his people are living under tyranny. They're not Roman citizens. They have no rights. And Jesus says nothing. Nothing. He goes to his people. Listen to some of the things that he said to the Jews. I'm not going to put these up. Just listen. Then Jesus said to the crowds and disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so observe and do whatever they tell you, but don't do what they do, for they preach, but they don't practice. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead men's people, of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Now why would he do this? Think about this. Jesus can go to the Romans and he can say, look, you need to repent of your sexual immorality. You need to repent of your slavery. You need to repent of, of abortion. You need to repent of your tyranny. He doesn't do that at all. He goes to his people and he excoriates them. Now why would he do that? I can tell you why, why he would do it. Matthew twenty three fifteen, And I want you to look at this one. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. A proselyte is a convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You see, listen to me, folks. The reason Jesus calls them out is they had forgotten their mission. God had chose them out as a people, a peculiar people, and had put them in place to be a light to the Philistines, to be a light to the Hittites, to be a light to the pagan cultures, and they had not done that. They had forgotten their mission. That was God's plan for them. That was how God planned to reach the pagan culture, was through His people. And they were the ones messing up the plan. In fact, it had gotten so bad that they were not only not leading people to God, the Bible says they were leading people away from Him. Romans 2.24, Paul says of the Jews, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
After seeing that in the Gospels, I couldn't help but ask the question, if Jesus came today, if He came into this culture and He came into this government, what would He do? Would He go to Caesar? Would He go to the President? Would He go to the Congress or the Supreme Court? Would He go on TV and call out the immorality that we see all around us? Folks, I don't think so. I don't think He would at all. You know who He'd go to? He'd come to us. And the first thing He'd say is, you need to get your house in order. You forgot the mission. You see, when I went to the Gospels to find out what I needed to do to change the culture, the first thing I found was the Gospels pointing the finger right back at me. And what it showed me was this. First and foremost, in my, self, in my life, I need to look at myself. Am I a hypocrite? Am I practicing what I preach? Am I just cleaning up the outside so I look good on Sunday to everybody? And inside, I'm just full of self-indulgence. Am I leading people to Christ? Or am I leading people away from Him? You see, that was my point number one, the first thing that jumped out at me. Peter says it in 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, that's point number one. Here's point number two. The Jews did not like what Jesus said. In fact, they, I can see them thinking, why are you talking to us? Go talk to them. They're the ones worshiping false gods. They're the ones engaging in sexual immorality. They're the ones, why are you talking to us? And so they didn't like what he said. So you know what they did? They killed him. They conspired with the Roman government and they had him crucified. Now at that time, crucifixion was considered so horrible and so cruel that the Romans would never use it on a Roman citizen, no matter how bad they were. You could be a Roman citizen and you could kill 50 people and they would not crucify you. It was considered that horrible and that cruel. In fact, crucifixion was not only meant to kill the victim, it was meant to degrade them and humiliate them. Cicero was a Roman philosopher and politician. He died about 50 years before Jesus was born. He said this, this is a quote from him, But the executioner and the very word cross let them be far removed from not only the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. Cicero said crucifixion is so bad, so cruel, so shameful, so humiliating, that not only should Roman citizens never experience it, they shouldn't think about it, they shouldn't see it, and they shouldn't hear the sounds of it. They should stay as far away from it as possible. It was a death reserved for foreign slaves and criminals, those considered to be the lowest of the low. In fact, we have very little, we have a lot of written evidence about crucifixion and how it was done. We have very little archaeological evidence. I'll mention something to you. We do have one instance of it. We have very little archaeological evidence. The reason is because people that were crucified were considered so low that they were very rarely buried. In fact, you had to get special permission to bury them. They literally, when they died on the cross, they would take them off the cross and they would throw them at the trash dump and let the dogs and the vultures eat them. That's how low of the low people that died on the cross were considered. Now, there were many ways to crucify. We're very familiar with one method because we've seen it for years and years, but there's actually multiple ways to crucify someone. 
and the time that the victims took to die would depend on how they were crucified. If you want them to last for a long while, what they would do is instead of nailing them to the cross, they would tie them up with ropes. And so it wasn't quite as bad. And and those victims sometimes could last up to seven days on the cross. They would just hang out on the cross till they finally died of exposure or they died of thirst or they died of hunger. If they wanted to kill you really fast, they would crucify you with your hands over your head like this. A victim that was crucified with their hands over their heads would usually die within an hour because it made breathing so impossible. But but victims like Jesus, who were crucified with their hands out to the side, could be expected to live up to about 24 hours. The first thing they would do is they would take these 7-inch nails, look like railroad spikes, and they would, they would nail, uh, they wouldn't go right through the hand, they would go right through the very base of the hand. And they would nail it through the bone, and it would actually go through the medial nerve. The medial nerve, by the way, if you ever see people with karate and stuff, they'll, they can actually paralyze your arm just by, by compressing that medial nerve right there. When they would nail that nail through that medial nerve, it literally, it was so painful that it would just paralyze the victim's arms. So they would nail them up on the, on the horizontal portion of the cross. The feet would be nailed to, of course, the, the vertical uh, part of the cross. Now, we're, a lot of the pictures we see of Jesus, he's got his feet crossed. But actually there is, in 1968, there was a, an excavation in Israel. And they excavated a tomb and they found a young Jewish man. He was 24 years old, 24 to 25 years old when he died. And he had been crucified. And when they, when they took out the tomb and they looked inside, they found the bones of his feet and the nail was still in his feet. And the interesting thing was, instead of being crucified through the top, what they found is that his feet were actually placed on either side of the beam and the nail was driven right through his ankle bone. And when they would crucify the victims like they did with Jesus, they would crucify them with their legs at a 45 degree angle. And what happens, the victim would have to push themselves up in order to take a breath. And then when they got tired, they'd sag back down and it would become hard to breathe again. And then they'd have to push themselves back up again in order to breathe. And eventually they would, that would get harder and harder to do. In fact, in John 19.31, when the Jews, on the day that Jesus was crucified, they wanted to get the bodies off the cross before sundown, the Sabbath started. And so they went to Pilate and said, can you tell the soldiers to go break their legs? So what they would do is they'd take a mallet, and when they wanted people to die quickly, they would actually, because they kept pushing themselves up, they would take that mallet and they would go and they'd break both of their shin bones so they could no longer push themselves up. When they did that, once they broke that, uh, the shin bones, and they broke their legs all of the weight would be immediately transferred into their arms. And within a minute, and, 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 and what would happen is the, is the shoulders themselves would pull out a socket. And the wrist and the elbows, elbows would eventually would, would follow as well. And then what would happen is all the weight would be compressed onto their chest. And fluid would begin to build up in the heart and in the lungs. And the victim would immediately begin to suffocate. You see, that's what they did to Jesus. That's what they did to our precious Lord. He hangs there. 
His joints out of socket. He's racked with thirst. He's got a headache beyond belief. He's tormented the cuts and the blood. He's being tormented with gnats and flies and unable to do anything about it. He's got unbearable pain from torn tendons. He's got the agony from the horrible weight of his body hanging by those wounds. He's suffering by the rearrangement, suffocating by the rearrangement of his internal organs. Shamed, humiliated, degraded. And by the way, you may ask, why did he have to die that way? Couldn't he have been beheaded? Couldn't he have been stabbed? Couldn't he have been stoned? Wasn't there some other way? You see, the answer to that is no. He had to die that way because he had to fulfill prophecy. I want you to listen to Psalms 22. This was written 1,000 years before Jesus died on the cross. Psalms 22, 14 through 17. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare, and they gloat over me. That was written 1,000 years before Jesus Christ died on the cross. Now you would think, and, I, and I'll tell you all this for a reason, you would think at that time being crucified on the cross was about as shameful and degrading and humiliating thing as a person could experience. And you would think because of that that the Christian church would want to hush up the fact that their leader, Jesus Christ, had been crucified. It's not something exactly to be proud of. But in actuality... The exact opposite is true. The apostles, by the way, they knew the idea of a crucified... Nobody would want to hear that. They knew that. They knew this idea of a crucified Savior wouldn't be something that you're going to go out and just everybody's going to say, man, that's the greatest message I ever heard. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. See, they knew, they knew it was a message no one wanted to hear. They knew they'd go out into the culture and begin to preach the cross and people would say, that's, that's stupid. That's foolish. They knew that. But listen to me. Despite that, the apostles placed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ at the very heart of their preaching. G Paul goes into Corinth. Remember I mentioned earlier, Corinth was well known throughout the Roman Empire as the most sexually immoral city in the empire. It was crazy there. I mean, everything went. They had the temple of Aphrodite. I mentioned earlier, they employed over 3,000 temple prostitutes. Paul goes into that city, and I want you to listen to what he said. 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul said this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul goes into that city. He goes into that culture, that broken, corrupt, pagan culture, and Paul says, I got one message for you. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Folks, here's my second point. The message is still the message. There is no other message. There is no plan B. God has chosen a people, a peculiar people, that He calls the church. And he has called the church to go out into the pagan culture, to go out into that world and take one message and one message only, 
and that is the message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and mine. That is the message. There is no plan B. Listen, what is our job? We are ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What is the second thing I need to do? I am to go out into the world, into the culture, and take the message of Jesus Christ, the message that He died on the cross. Listen, if you're here today and you want to change yourself, you do it one way, and that's through the cross. If you're here today and you want to change your family, there's one message, one answer, it's through the cross. You want to change your culture, you want to change your world, you want to change your government, you do it one way, and that is through the message of the cross. There is no plan B. There is no plan B. I'm sorry, but there is no plan B. Paul and the other apostles went out into that Roman culture and they renounced rhetoric. They renounced human wisdom. They knew it would be foolish. But they went out there anyway and they preached a crucified Christ and they were not ashamed of it. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ gave His life and shed His blood on an old rugged cross for you and for me so that our sins could be forgiven and we can be reconciled to God. That is the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. For in that message, it is the power of God to save everyone who will believe. Cicero may have urged his fellow Roman citizens to shield their eyes and their ears and their thoughts from the cross, but not us. That which was most shameful to the Romans becomes our proudest boast. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Somewhere along the line, I'm afraid the church in America has gotten off track. We, I want you to listen to me very closely. We never read in the New Testament or any of the, New, in the Gospels or the New Testament anywhere of Jesus or any of the ex- apostles expending any time or any energy trying to reform a pagan culture. None. Now, don't misunderstand me. I want you to listen to me very closely. I believe that it is our right and it is our duty and responsibility of every Christian to vote and to vote for leaders who promote Christian principles and values. I believe mature Christians, and I underline the word mature, should run for office and seek to promote Christian values in government. That is your right. By the way, that is biblical as well. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is preaching in the temple, and there's a riot. And the Roman centurions who had a, had a barracks right beside the, the, the uh, temple grounds, they saw what was happening, and they run down and they arrested Paul. And the Roman centurion who was the leader, he said, take him and whip him, tie him up with thongs and whip him and find out what the problem is. And Paul said to him, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do that without a trial. You see, Paul immediately invoked his right as a Roman citizen. And the guy said, oh, oh, sorry about that. I didn't know that. In, in uh, Acts 25, Paul is, is being arre- has been arrested and they take him before a guy named Festus, who's a Roman governor. And Festus wasn't the best guy. He's actually in cahoots with the Jews. And he wanted to please them. And Paul knew that. 
And Paul's, and so Festus says to Paul, Paul, how about we go back to Jerusalem and we'll have a trial and the Jews can have their say and you can have your say. Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. Festus said, okay, off to Rome you go. Listen, you have rights as an American citizen and you should use those rights. You may ask, Derek, can we pick it? Can we campaign? Can we lobby our elected leaders? Can we go to town halls and participate on issues that concern us? Absolutely. That is your right. As long as you understand, none of those things will ever win a single soul to Jesus Christ. None of those things will ever win a single person to Jesus Christ. Listen, the church has a unique, God-given purpose and mission in this world that is to win people to Christ. That's it. Win people to Jesus Christ. How did we forget that ours is a spiritual battle? A battle that's not going to be won through human means. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4, in the New Living Translation, we're human, but we don't wage war. As humans do, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false argument. When I finished my study... There were two things that I knew that I needed to do in my life moving ahead. And I believe it's two things that Jesus and the apostles commanded the first Christians as well as us today. And that is, number one, live lives that give clear evidence of the gospel's transforming power. Let me say that again. Live a life that gives clear evidence of the gospel's transforming power. Have you got some trash in your life that needs to get out? Jesus put it this way. He was pretty blunt. Get the log out of your own eye. Then you can see to get the speck out of your brother's. See, it's me first. I can't say, what about them? No, Jesus says, no, what about you? But he always did this. They brought the woman in adultery to him. Look what she did. What does he say? What about your sin? What about your sin? He always did that. So that's what he did to me, by the way. He pointed it right back at me and said, Derek, what about you? So number one, live lives that give clear evidence of the gospel's transforming power. Number two, proclaim the gospel, the good news of Christ's death on the cross. That is first and foremost. That is your message. That is your mission. That is your job. I'm going to ask Ryan, if he will, to come on up. And uh, sometimes I know, you you know how sometimes you sit and listen to sermons and at the end of the day you remember one thing? You can't, it's hard to remember everything, but you remember one thing like that Sunday. I really have no idea what Pastor Henry preached about, but I remember he was standing right here. (laughs) I remember that. So I want to close with an analogy that hopefully you will remember. Being a Christian in the world is kind of like a train station. And the Christians are all in line, and we're all getting on the northbound train, which is going to heaven. And the world, this culture of ours, is all in another line, and they're all getting on the southbound train, and they have no idea, completely unaware of its tragic destination. Now, here's the question for you and I. Should we spend our time and energy pleading with them to switch trains, or do we merely clean up the train station? 
Let me say that again. Do we spend our time and energy pleading with them to switch trains? Or do we just clean up the train station? You see, the fact is, what if in that train station, while we're on that train and we're getting ready to go to heaven and they're all going to hell, if we made sure the the signs were all posted correctly? What if we made sure the clocks were all set correctly and they're all in time? What if we we put up the little posts so everybody's lines were, were delineated properly? What if we actually made up some rules that everybody had to follow? And what if we actually hired security guards to make sure those everybody did that and we, we got it all working great, everything was perfect. And what we ended up with is a bunch of well-behaving people going to hell. We just rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Folks, our job, our mission is to go to that line and plead with them to be reconciled to God. That is what we're called to do. I'm not saying there's not other things. You know, I I understand I've simplified this today. But I'm telling you, number one, we have to live lives in front of the world so that when I go to somebody, I'm not pushing them away from Christ, but my life is drawing them, them to Him. So that when I proclaim the message of the cross, they see it worked for Him. I want what He's got. Listen, should we spend our time and energy pleading with them to switch trains or do we merely clean up the train station. Listen, the answer is obvious. And those who would clean up the culture for the culture's sake are not only missing the point, they're misunderstanding the church's unique mission. And that is to proclaim the message of the cross to a lost and dying world. As we close today, Christians, I've had to repent and I've had to recommit myself to the cross. And I would ask that you do the same that somehow today you would remember my mission is to carry the message of the cross and you would come back to that. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever and you may say, maybe you got some, some mess in your life and you say, Derek, you know, I've tried that church thing. Listen, it ain't about a church thing. It's about a cross. You don't try the cross. The cross absorbs you. The cross obliterates you. The cross crushes you and takes you captive to itself. You can try church all day. I'm telling you, come to the cross. And you'll never, you get up from the cross, you will never, ever be the same. And that's our mission, folks. And by the way, unbeliever, he hung on a cross. He endured all the stuff that we talked about. That was the price that he paid. Don't dare think that one day you're going to stand before him and he's going to say, eh, don't worry about that. That was just for a few of them. I didn't really need to die that way. No. There is one way to heaven. There is one name given among heaven why we must be saved. That is Jesus Christ. There is no other way. He's not, listen, you're not going to get there one day and Jesus said, eh, for them sins, let me just get them under the rug here. Don't worry about it. I love you. No, he loved you so much that he died for you. If you're here today, do not walk out of here without coming and throwing yourself at the foot of the cross, at the foot of the man, the God-man that died for me and you. Um, Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for what you did on that cross. Thank you again for listening to River of Life Podcast. If this message has touched you today, or if you need somebody to pray with you, please let us know. 
you can call us at 850-926-1200 or send an email at info at riveroflifefl.com. We also encourage you to check out River of Life live this Sunday at 10.30 a.m. in Crawfordville. Visit riveroflifefl.com for more information and directions.